This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a 3RRR film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined on Plato's Cave tonight by Cerise Howard and Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Good evening to you both. Hello. Hello. And we hope Emma Westwood is doing well. Uh, well we're not going to see Emma for a while, actually. We, we should announce there's going to be a bit of movement and rotation amongst us all being on and off the show over the next few weeks. But the, the show will go on and we may even have the occasional special guest or two. Ooh. Ooh. Let's kick off the show tonight. We're going to look at David Lynch, The Art Life. This is a new documentary about filmmaker David Lynch that focuses on his artwork. We're also going to look at Choker, Please Tell Us the Time, or Chowka. Do we have agreement on how that was pronounced? I read a review that said that it sounds like Choker, but I think in the the film they call it Chowka. Yeah, having watched it only this afternoon, I thought I was hearing Chowka, but... Chalka. Mm. Let's go with Chalka. Chalka, please tell us the time then. This is a documentary made in secret from within the Manus Island Detention Centre and it's a film that's been made by one of its detainees. But first, Graduation is the new film by the acclaimed Romanian filmmaker Christian Mungjul, who is best known for his 2012 Cannes Film Festival Palm Door winning film Four months, three weeks and two days. Now, Graduation, I was actually kind of blown away to discover it's only his second feature film since then and only his fourth feature film in total. He has also worked on anthology films and made short films. Graduation is set in a small Romanian town and it's about a guy named Romero Aldea, a doctor, sorry, Romeo Aldea, a doctor who wants nothing more than for his daughter to get a scholarship that will enable her to study in the UK and supposedly live a far better life. However, when his daughter is assaulted the day before her exams, he's worried that she won't be capable of earning the high marks that she needs. So he resorts to the network of corruption that exists in the town to ensure her exams are graded high enough. This lapse in morality leads to a chain of events that further complicate everybody's lives. Now, I think it's fair to say this is a film that we were all quite excited about having, I mean, we it's sort of four months, three days, four months, three weeks and two days is sort of universally loved and acclaimed. And he, on the strength of that film alone, he's one of these filmmakers that we're all, always very excited to see what it is he does next. This film was so stressful. I found this really <laughs> very, very stressful viewing. I knew You're talking about graduation. Be. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, I have four months, uh, three weeks, two days, one scotch, one bourbon, one beer. It was also <laughs> extremely I think he makes stressful films. Yeah, yeah, he does. I mean, it's uh, this, this Romanian miserabilism. Uh, it's never going to be easy viewing. In, in a way, it's a classic kitchen sinker setup. You've got parents who want nothing more than to have, uh, at least a parent in particular, wants nothing more than the next generation to do better and have a better lot in life and better prospects. But... Um, is a common trope in post-communist cinema, the the idea that uh, while regimes change and uh, systems uh, undertake democratic reforms, uh, no matter how far advanced those reforms get, and you see this in post-communist cinema from all across that old uh, Eastern Bloc, uh, no matter how much um, they change, uh, corruption is still rampant and old elites remain elites. And as soon as you get uh, even one little foot in that corruption camp things will snowball and this whole 
tapestry of a corrupt society will just somehow come down and envelop you. And this film just uh, it teases that out. Uh, it's a slow burner, but by the time it gets to this almost like horror movie uh, sequence in the dark on a, a housing lot, it was just so unbelievably stressful. I, I found this film... Um, Really devastatingly difficult and depressing and kind of wonderful because I really I was respect say, did that. Did you like it? I really <laughs> respect that. <laughs> it, it's funny about the harrowing nature because I saw this with somebody who really wasn't in the mood for anything harrowing. Yikes! And well, here's the thing, and and they said to me afterwards in the first twenty minutes they were they were worried because we the assault is not on camera but it's spoken about. Um, there, there's a scene with with a dog that is isn't very pleasant and. And they were really bracing themselves for, am I going to have to walk out of this film because I'm just not in the mood for harrowing? And by the end of the film, they were so grateful they'd stayed with it. And, and this person, <laughs> this strange person, it was my wife, was saying um, <laughs> she, she felt she was really, really moved and blown away and fulfilled by this film. And I found it a really rich experience. It, it is it is hard work. Like, it is stressful and harrowing and a lot of the stress is to do with the sound design. This film has this incredible textured sound design where no scene is free from ambient noise and annoying ambient noise. Phones are constantly going off. There'll be music from another room intruding in the small apartment where they're staging a scene. There'll be lawnmowers outside or people yelling. It just captures that feeling of living in a poor community where the insulation around you is, is rubbish and there are people who don't care about the noise they're making and it really sets your teeth on edge and yet I found this a really rich film and I actually think it ends with quite an amazing moment of hopefulness like the very last shot my heart kind of soared and it was so I mean his last film before this which I didn't enjoy quite as much also had a brilliant final shot this guy knows how to end a film I know how to start one too. The opening. The middles aren't bad. No, the middles aren't <laughs> bad. pretty good. But even this uh, composition at the very outset, there's just um, uh, it's uh, doc- in a housing project. There's the eye is drawn to various little details in there until by degrees you notice this mound of uh, gravel or something of earth and, and just nonsense uh, been coming out. Uh, you, you witness it airborne briefly. Realize that there's somebody actually digging a hole. They're completely not. In shot, you just see this mound growing very, very slowly. Moments later, there's a brick through a window. You wonder, is there a connection? There's all manner of things that happen that lend suspense to all of what what follows. This family seem to be being hounded. There are some clues in a rather Michael Haneke uh, hidden sort of way that there might be links you might want to form between some events that occur right at the start of the film and later on, but they could be total red herrings. Just the whole society seems to be so crumbling. And as you say, Thomas, there's the sense of this flimsy housing where uh, sound does just bleed in from one space to another. And that's made literal in the first few moments with a broken window. Yeah. I mean, the film starts with a window being smashed and mm. I think they're, they're taping up the window. Um, so it is it is about these sort of really delicate um, sort of structures. It's, it's a film about delicate structures and yeah. how, how easily they collapse. Yes, well, I mean... The, the, the main thing that happens in this film is this character who's obviously overall a very good man. I mean, he, he is cheating on his wife. He's probably his sort of biggest social faux pas. <laughs> that's, a, that's not exactly the right way to express it, is it? Um, in the eyes of many, him cheating on his, his wife would be viewed as a, a, a moral descent and definitely uncool. Um, although it's interesting how that plays out later in the film. Nothing is quite what you think it is in, mm. in this Um 
but but he's somebody who is played by the rules, who has worked extremely hard. He just wants the best for his daughter, but he makes this one decision to to get involved in this kind of incredibly intricate network of corruption and, and bribery, which seems to be second nature in this town. Like, it, it's just there. There's nothing kind of secretive or scary about it. You just need to make the decision all right, I'll go and make an agreement with this guy. I love how completely not cloak and dagger corruption is. I think that this film is a really great... Graduation is a really great sort of micro-study of, of of the kind of... the minutiae of, of, of corruption. You know, it's this constant chatter, constant polite... You know, the, the kind of ethical justifications that the characters involved. It's not this moustache-twirling villainy. It's this, mm. oh, you're a good guy and he's a good guy. I'm sure he can help you out. You know, this is this is a strange situation that you're in, and I'm sure that they wouldn't mind. You know, this is mm. what we do. Friends help each other out. Um, and do you remember he helped us out when we were kids, and I'm sure that he'd be happy to help you out now that you've got kids. So it's this complete, um, the kind of normalisation of corruption. Um, and a very lies patriarchal Absolutely. corruption at that. And, and how the, I mean, and I think that's what one of the interesting things. I, I know so little um, about Romanian cinema compared to what I would like to know but the the thing that i i find really interesting is in his films is this interest in intergenerational shifts and i think that you're right i think that there is a, there is hope in in the you know it's these, these he does see different generations as being um completely separate kind of ideological but also ethical yeah. entities which also reminds me a lot of um it's a really random connection to make but when i was watching this the tone i know the film's not it's not a rape revenge film but it actually reminded me of a lot of um Argentine rape revenge film, especially stuff that was being made during the time of The Disappeared. So, you know, these countries that have been in crisis or are in crisis, how they they use cinema, not allegorically as such, but just as a way to kind of negotiate or reflect on, um, on national trauma. Like, how do we actually get our head around the crazy, crazy, crazy shit that's happened to our country? We can use film and there's this intensity that, that um, these two very different cultures, I think, have in a lot of their, their films. And I think this film is very much talking about the different priorities of different generations as well. And a lot of that is expressed in the father, who is, who is really trying to do the right thing by his daughter. But I think very early you sort of get this sense that she doesn't need him to get her to go through and do these exams. She needs a father to care for her because she's had a traumatic experience. And I think that's very sophisticated, the way the film deals with, with that relationship and allows the audience to see stuff that the father doesn't see. This is a, a really impressive film in the way that it, it conveys quite overtly certain things as well without being explicit. And that's a really hard thing to do. Some films can be deliberately obtuse to appear a little bit sort of arty and sophisticated and you're left often not too sure exactly if you've interpreted it the way you were, you were meant to. It, it's a really delicate art and this film nails it. It doesn't say anything explicitly but you do know exactly what certain things represent and mean. And of course there are deliberate things that do go unresolved. Like I think if you were to watch this film in a very literal mindset of say you would take to a murder mystery film for example, you'd be incredibly frustrated. But I think this film makes it pretty clear some details in the long run aren't nearly as important as you may think they are at the start of the film. And it's not frustrating when you don't get some of the obvious answers that you might expect from a different type of film. I think it makes, uh, certainly for me, graduation made me very conscious of the interpretations that I was bringing to the film. Yep. Um, so, you know, what what happened to the girl precisely isn't made explicit. I certainly don't see anything. But even even in terms of conversation, it's implied but it's never made clear. But you, you have enough information to paint a picture, but it's your picture. The same where the car hits something. Um, you know, they say, oh, it's a dog. 
is it a, is it a, you know what I mean? There's all these little gaps. There's, there's the gaps are just, I think I agree with you. And the gaps are the right size. Yeah, yeah. In that, that they're not too big that you fall into, okay, there's, you know, it, this whimsy, you know, it's not this sort of, um, it's not the, it's not a mystery film by any stretch of the imagination. And it, um, it is one of those films that I think encourages you to draw your own conclusions that may not be the correct conclusions, but it doesn't punish you or condescend hmm. towards you for that either. It very much acknowledges, yep, that's where you went. It's very frank and, and hmm. um, for <laughs> four months I can never get the... One bourbon, one yeah. scotch, one beer. Yeah. I, I was reading it off a piece of paper and I got it wrong. Can so we get it? Four, four months, months three, three weeks, weeks and two days. <laughs> I would never get the name of that. It's not hard. I mean, it's not like the eight times tables. I don't know why I can't get it right. Um, I don't even know where I was going with that. <laughs> Can I just pick up? It's interesting, Cerise, that you mentioned Haneke because I've, I've, I'm quickly reading some other reviews of this film. A lot of people have compared it to Michael Haneke's cinema. But the director I thought of was actually Asghar Fahadi, who we spoke about... Yep. Yeah, definitely. Okay, good. Not yeah, just no, I get that too. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason the frankness, is... frankness, it's so frank. It's frank, but also none of these characters are villains. Nobody in this film is actually... I mean, some of the people we don't see on screen obviously are, but none of the characters are bad people. They're all trying to do the right thing. Some are more co- morally compromised than others, but they're all people wanting the best for themselves, their families and their community. And that's amazing drama to get that working yeah and both i think uh, corrupt patriarchy is uh, indicted in in the cinema of, of both auteurs um yes. i generally see a lot of post-communist cinema it's something that's of particular interest to me as you'd expect from someone who directs a czech and slovak film festival <laughs> and so i'm very accustomed to seeing this nice plug yeah, yeah. thank you <laughs> thank you very much i uh, i i'm very used to seeing films set in this sort of milieu not necessarily always as downtrodden as this town is, uh, which it positions itself as being somewhere near Cluj, which is the, a major city in Transylvania, but it's not Cluj. And um, I only actually myself know of Cluj because it has a, a film festival, the Transylvania International Film Festival. Is it amazing? <laughs> I'm told. Oh. Yeah. Do they... Do they yeah, show they lots do of vampire it, films? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Thomas. Do they, do they deliberately not show Oh, Alex. <laughs> do, do they oh, hate, for shame. Do they hate that? No, I reckon they milk it. <laughs> I mean, you've got to, don't you? You've got to. But, um, yeah, there's, there's, there was something very familiar about this, this setting, but the film has such complexity to it. Yeah. And, and it's a moral complexity. It's not just a complex network that it, it um, teases out, that you learn that this person is inextricably linked to this person through a favour once done long back, and this person is the mayor or has been the mayor but now is sick and therefore needs help from someone here and maybe someone can jump up the queue a little if we call in a favour from... You know, it's just so complex. And trying to follow that throughout the film, at least I couldn't help but try to follow it, but in a way that's not as important as just the fact that there are these connections and you try to make sense of the the moral conundrum that all of these people face and try to negotiate. And, yeah, as you said, there's not villainy as such. There's improper conduct and abuse of power but it's seen as a necessity and and it's this isn't quite cliche but um i mean this is a masterful filmmaker dealing with for me territory that's very familiar but you know there are still more uh, ethical conundrums that can be teased out of these scenarios and i think this is a really great film just extremely stressful <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I definitely agree with all that. I, this is definitely probably going to be one, one of my highlights f- for the year and when we, we look back at it. I, I just, to deal with this kind of information in such a sophisticated way, 
only master filmmakers can, can really do that. I think this is a, a bit of a masterclass on how to deal with, with drama at, at this level. And, and it is stressful, but like I said, I, I also didn't find it an unbearable experience. It's very weird to watch a film being aware of how stressful I'm finding it, but also hmm. kind of comforted by the this idea that I think I'm in very good hands here and it's it's yeah. ultimately worth it. I was thinking that just even with the title graduation, like this stepping up, you know, that, that idea and I think that um, it's something that you can't underplay enough when you watch a film like, film like graduation it's you're in the hands of a master you know what I mean, you kind of I think that's what got me through the stress was it, um, you know, I know that where I'm being taken is somewhere worth being taken and it's a really nice experience being able to trust a filmmaker enough to do that yeah, and one really interesting moment where that fourth wall is kind of broken too. Very sophisticated viewing. Uh, yeah, it's a great film. There you have it, folks. Graduation. It is screening, I think, exclusively at Cinema Nova. So uh, very much worth making the effort to go and see that one. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. David Lynch, The Art Life, is a new documentary on filmmaker David Lynch that screened in Melbourne recently as part of the American Essentials Film Festival and it's now available on home entertainment. The film is directed by John Newen and some of the rest of the team behind the 2007 documentary Lynch One, which was uh, the making of Lynch's last feature film, Inland Empire. This new documentary is focused on his work as an artist rather than a filmmaker and it covers Lynch's childhood, adolescence and early creative years prior to making his debut film A Razorhead. David Lynch, The Art Life consists mainly of shots of Lynch at home working in his studio, archival photos and examples of his artwork with audio recordings of the notoriously private and secretive filmmaker discussing his life Influences an artistic process. Before what did I you think, oh, be- before this even before gonna, I even started watching this, I'm just yep. going straight in. All I could think was of Blur's Park Life and Phil Daniels. Obviously, I mean, obviously. just Phil Daniels just saying, you know, Park Life, Art Life, just over and over uh, and over uh, again. I like I was, just I was Art Life, I was leading something Art useful. Life. No, just I just had like total <laughs> Phil Daniels. I I almost wanted this this disc to have like a Phil Daniels commentary. I just want total blur. And once you go in that loophole, it was, that was me. That's all I've got. But with Lynch's drawl. God, that'd be amazing. So this isn't the first you... Lynch documentary to have uh, popped what? up on the Horizon. There was no. Pretty as a Picture that came out in the 90s. Which I really wanted to watch Never because I'm that. sure that some of the stories, I don't know whether it was yep. Pretty, um, I, I've heard some of those stories before. Yeah, there wasn't. Um, and it felt, uh, I mean, Bloody hell, where do we go with Lynch? Like, everybody has an opinion on Lynch. What can we possibly say at the moment, especially in the kind of Twin Peaks hysteria, that people are going to say, hmm, there's he's a fascinating, of, he's, there's fascinating insight into yeah, David a bit Lynch of a that's, paunch. that's not being... <laughs> <laughs> he smokes a lot. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm one of these people who adored him ever since I discovered him as, as a teenager and sort of, yeah, he was very much my director and I loved him. And I think part of the appeal of Lynch is that he does feel like a kind of secret filmmaker who you, you fall in love with, but it happens to pretty much everybody. Like, being a big Lynch fan is not exactly a, re- a revelation. Um you know, it's taken me a while to realise it doesn't make me that interesting or edgy saying <laughs> I'm, I'm really into David Lynch because a lot of people are. Um, 
and there's something about his his filmmaking that kind of lends itself to being decoded. Or you're not meant to do that, and everyone says you shouldn't do that with his films, and he says you shouldn't do that. But there is a bit of a uh, uh, an enjoyment in sort of trying to decode and figure out what exactly his, his films pro- I mean, it's mean. a provocation. That's that's yeah. what he's, you know, certainly not the work that's being addressed in this documentary. And I think that's why I like this documentary is because it reminded me of the David Lynch that isn't this sort of totem for every annoying goddamn fanboy I've ever met. It's like actually he's a guy who's got some really interesting stuff to say about art and moving image culture. Um, and hearing his story about how he, growing up and all of this stuff feeds into that was really refreshing, especially now when we're just in Lynch, just mm. just saturation mode. It was actually kind of refresh, refreshing to have him say something that wasn't, yeah, like every, oh, my God, I've got to get off stay, social media. Stay off Twitter, yeah. <laughs> No, no, and I think that's what I really loved about this film as well. It, it, it pulled back to Lynch as the artist as, as opposed to the sort of the cult of Lynch, the personality of Lynch, the the cool, weird guy Lynch, which I've always been very frustrated with. People who can't see beyond Lynch as simply being that weird film director. It looks at his process as an artist. And although there was a lot in this new documentary that I'd heard before, there was also a lot I hadn't, particularly some of the very personal stuff. Lynch does not get too personal. And there's a moment in this film where he's telling a story about his childhood where he actually chokes up and says, I can't keep telling this story. And I've never seen him that vulnerable. We see him interacting with his very young daughter, which is sort of something I never see um, of Lynch. And he tells some very interesting stories about his childhood, which make a lot of sense in the context of the art and and the filmmaking he's done ever since. So this was the first time I felt I got a bit of an insight into him that I never thought I would have had before and I've certainly never got from all the interviews I've read of him and um, as in Lynch the person as, as, as well as Lynch the artist I really dug this film I've always thought he's had a strange avuncular quality if say your uncle was someone who was just that little bit sort of carny folkish uh, you know, his, his draw the more I, I, I've never heard him speak so much as in this film and that draw becomes quite mesmerising. There's a certain cadence to his speech that if you hear enough of it, it's, it's almost narcotizing. actually. I found myself getting quite drowsy. But what I enjoyed most in this is, was not even so much what he said as, as what the film showed to do with his non-moving image work. We see a tremendous amount of Lynch painting and making other sorts of work, uh, mixed-media work, and really palpating things. We see a lot of Lynch's fingers in paint but in other substances and smearing it over canvas and other surfaces and he he really gets mucky and it's wonderful i really enjoyed actually seeing how much um his art is a tactile thing for him it's something we don't often necessarily think of when we watch the film work of an artist who might operate in other media but to see that this is someone who literally gets their hands dirty I was fascinated watching him making artwork and all of it was very clearly Lynchian. That sensibility that is, uh, he imbues his films with is, is even more in your face in those artworks. It's really dirty, grubby, spooky, uncanny, eerie stuff and um, I couldn't see enough of it. And there, there are wonderful montages within this uh, film. Of, we just see quick successions, not long enough to really scrutinise the, the, the image at all, but enough just to see sequences of not exactly like images, of similar images, but somehow everything is Lynchian. So you just see this wonderful succession of Lynchian imagery. 
and a lot of it with just uh, a real sense of depth to what's on the canvas. It, it's all... I, I wanted to reach into the screen, uh, Videodrome style. I wanted to touch things. <laughs> it was really... I mean, yeah, it was so tactile and kind of, like, squidgy. You know, there's a tube of, like, I don't know, silicon stuff. Mm. At one point, you can just see him just... And it's that that sort of that same not slowness as his speech, but that same temporal stretch yeah. of of his particular accent. That that's the way that he works. You know, you can see him kind of slowly working into the goo, mm, um, into the goo, into the goo. Oh, it, I love that it focuses yeah, on his art it was because that, that, that's that focus, that very small focus. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really that's the stuff that I really like too, and I liked how it framed that in relation to his moving image work as well. That there was a kind of natural progression um, from his early um, his early visual art into into moving image and into film and um, ongoing. I mean, he's yeah. never stopped. He's quite a prolific artist. He he never has stopped, and um, uh, it, it's just great to see it celebrated more and more. And you know, I. I don't mean to be a geographical name dropper, but you know, some, I got to go to the between, the between Two Worlds exhibition of his art up in Queensland, and more years, before, several more years before that, I went to the Aries on Fire exhibition of his in in Paris, which was also like that on a larger scale, which is dedicated to his artwork. And both these exhibitions and this documentary film do a really good job of connecting his ongoing themes from his artwork into his film. And I like the way this film uses a lot of montage and non-obvious kind of editing cues to, to, to do that. Like his obsession with, with the doubles and the, you know, people having a dark persona that's an evil version of themselves, which is playing out very literally at the moment in the current Twin Peaks series. And his very mixed up and confused feelings about women, this kind of eroticization of women, but also there's something traumatic and frightening about them. And for him, and he tells this incredible story as in the film of when he was a boy seeing a very distressed naked woman with, with a bloodied face stumbling down the street and how that was obviously imprinted completely on his mind and his, his sexuality ever since. And we've seen him recreate that scene in, in Blue Velvet, but it also appears in his films. And, and this idea of things go wrong in the house or suburbia is a facade for darker things and his, his anxiety about... D- domestic violence which again is expressed in a a lot of his films and how it creates this disassociative effect when you see the human form broken down um it was just fascinating hearing him tell stories as a from his childhood and seeing how that then manifested into his artwork and we see that again into his films i mean twin peaks fire walk with me is a film that puts the viewer in the mind of a of a of a incest and sexual abuse victim going through enormous amount of trauma to the degree Just that a she cracker com- of a film completely disassociates what's going on around her. I mean, I don't think he gets he gets enough credit for some of the um, very powerful work he has done on domestic violence and, and sexual abuse. And um, I've heard, you know, I've, I've read secondhand testimonies from people who have said he absolutely captures that feeling of horror and despair and yeah that, that disassociated state that that comes when you're experiencing something like this so um, i've just gone to full gush mood <laughs> I, you, you can tell I'm a, I'm a big fan and i think this film really does justice to the more serious thoughtful side of, of this man who is an artist talking about the man who is an artist i'm going to use i don't know if this is shonky let's see if it's shonky one of my little holy grails and i cannot find anything about this um i'm fascinated um lynch when he was making dune in mexico he had an art exhibition um which was works that he made about dune 
1983 and I can find none of these images online. Um, I would love to track these down if anybody's listening and knows what I'm talking about. Um, contact us on, on the Twitter that I won't be checking anymore until Twin Peaks is over. Because <laughs> you people are driving me insane. Yeah. No, I've seen references to the I exhibition. I own so many art books of uh-huh. his and I've, I've seen never references, seen that there's, stuff. There's lots of references to the exhibition happening. Yeah. There's a photo of just, um, who is he with? I think he's with Dino De Laurentiis and somebody quite disconnected it's like it's not Terence Stamp but there's somebody at the exhibition there's photos of them at the exhibition but not the actual work and I'm really I want to see what paintings he was making in Mexico when he was making Dune the the H.R. Giga work for the Dune that Jodorowsky never got to make is everywhere (laughs) and that's very easy to find and it's amazing yeah, it's but, fast, um, I mean, considering hmm. what a glut, I mean, is it, you know, what a total glut there is of Lynch memorabilia. I mean, you know, it's a, it's an entire subculture now, really. Well, he's not a fan of June um, or his experiences on that, so he may no, have suppressed it all himself. <laughs> you wouldn't think that he could, I mean, nothing else from June. You know, he didn't get the board game. We have it at home. (laughs) Does it come with Sting's codpiece? Is that one of the pieces you can move around the board? Don't we all, Cerise? That's what you do to roll the dice. That's what you use to roll the dice with. (laughs) But again, in this film, I saw stuff I hadn't seen before. Like I'd seen like archival film footage. I'd seen still photos of him on the set of a Razorhead and sort of with, with friends and family around Philadelphia. But a lot of the moving footage of this was stuff I hadn't seen before, including that there's a bit in this film where it looks like he's working with whatever the Razorhead baby is, and that's the closest <laughs> I've seen. Whatever it is. Yeah, yes. well, it's always been a, a secret as to exactly how they created that. And, I mean, the, the, the rumours are ridiculous but very fun. But there are moments in this documentary where it looks like he's manipulating something that is possibly what the baby is. I was really curious that this doco allied all mention of transcendental meditation, which we know that Lynch became... Uh, <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. And coffee. And, and oh, coffee. No, wait, he does talk about coffee, doesn't he? He doesn't try to sell coffee, though. That's George Clooney. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Did Lynch and coffee, is there a thing? Yeah, mm. you can buy Lynch coffee. Well, you used to be able to... Are you, are you being facetious or are you... No. Yes, which, what? L- 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 Lynch is a big coffee guy. Oh, right. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, obviously there's that, that guy in Twin Peaks, that character. No, no, Lynch, yeah, mm. a special agent Cooper. Dave. Dale, Dale, Dave? Dale Cooper. <laughs> am, I, am I misremembering? There was a... Um, there was a yeah, and a, he, there was he a has Lynch his own coffee. coffee. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 were, they were selling it up at Brisbane in the uh, part of the exhibition. Yikes. But he is such a talismanic figure in transcendental meditation circles, I gather. Yeah, it's his big thing at and the I moment. And I gather yeah. he, he was... Uh, drawn towards that at a pretty young age, at around the age where a lot of the uh, the artwork he talks about in this film uh, is was was generated, and the animations and so on. I think he was a pretty early adopter. I mean, that must have something to do with his his thang. No, no. What do we know about Lynch transcendental meditation? It's a very big part of his process. It's very important to him. He, he credits it as being a major influence on his work and his life and his his, his lifestyle. But yeah, it's yeah. absent yeah, in this totally film. Absent. Which, having heard him speak about it, that's the one thing I yeah. do get Seems a bit curious. bored listening to him speak about. So I've I was, never heard him speak about it. Yeah. Weirdly, it's the only time I glaze over when he gets too much onto his transcendental med- meditation. So rant. it makes you kind of meditate in a funny way. <laughs> Possibly See, does. That's, yeah. that's why he wins. Well, his speaking voice is, as I said, should before, give it a really go. It's meant to be like, great. Yeah. yeah. We, we Stick do- with coffee. <laughs> <laughs> coffee yes. uh, he does make cigarette smoking look so appealing. That's that's terrible, isn't he it? He also makes being 70 look pretty good too. He's got too. a damn yeah. good quiff still. That's yeah. fabulous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, remarkable man. I am a, a shameless fanboy, but um, I, I do think this is a good... A really good documentary, even if you're a little bit burnt out by I the Lynch, Lynch fatigue, mania at the I have Lynch fatigue and I found moment. it 
really rejuvenating. Yep. It actually reminded me why I think he's an interesting guy. There so, you go. Yep. David Lynch, The Art Life is available on Home Entertainment at the moment. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 R. 3 Triple R. The chucker bird or the Manus friar bird is native to Manus Island, a tiny province in the north of Papua New Guinea. You may have heard of it. They are by all accounts loud as fudge and so reliable is its morning song that you can effectively tell the time by it. Now, it is as crucial to Manusian identity, we're told in the film that we're discussing next, as the kangaroo is to Australia. Our country is, as you may have figured out, not raised purely by coincidence because Chauka is also the name Australian employees have given the prison within a prison at the Manus Regional Processing Centre. The gulag, neither side of politics in this country, seems in an awful rush to admit has been a total shit show ethically and legally. The documentary Chauka, Please Tell Us the Time, was co-directed by Iranian-Dutch filmmaker Arash Kamali Savastani, my apologies, and Manus Island detainee, journalist Baruz Buchani, the latter of whom filmed an incredible range of footage on his mobile phone from within the camp itself. Now, both Savastani and Buchani share a love of the late, great Iranian director Abbas Kiristami. The reference is not unimportant here as they work through poetry and emotion as much as eyewitness reports in this, their assault and expose of the horrors consecutive Australian governments have had a hand in being responsible for. Is my politics coming through at all on this? Is there a little bias, perhaps, do you think? (laughs) No. There are only three screenings of this film at ACME um, told not... Uh, the story is not told only by the Iranian filmmakers but by other inmates uh, and some Manusian locals. It's screening at Acme on the 16th, 17th and 18th of June and co-director Savastani will present and introduce each session, joined Friday by Green Senator Nick McKim and Saturday by award-winning writer and human rights activist Arnold Zabel. There is a lot to get through his cerise. How did you go? Uh, well, this was, uh, as expected, um, upsetting. Um and I, I can't necessarily say it, it told me things I didn't know were going on, um, but it showed them, which That's is another exactly how I whole felt. matter, mm-hmm. and which is very distressing. Um, yeah, there's actually some 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 of what's most interesting in this for me is actually formal, but formal in a way which is rich in meaning. So uh, an early shot of paradisiacal beach beachfront the camera pulls back and of course once it's finished pulling back we're actually on uh, the inside of some bars uh, sort of a, a little trick that will be performed a few times in the course of the film just to remind you that yes while there is something that is seemingly a tropical paradise there in fact no one is having a very good time uh, because they are being detained indefinitely um, illegally and with precious little hope. And in fact, with this, one of the, the most devastating aspects of this film is a, a, that we regularly are thrown to a conversation, a phone conversation an inmate is having. It uh, seems time and again he's speaking to family members who don't seem to be able to grasp that he's somehow not just skiving off in a tropical resort or something. They don't really know much about the terrible plight he is enduring and he's trying to explain it to them and having an extremely exasperating time trying to communicate just how grim his lot in life has arbitrarily become. And it's so upsetting uh, viewing that. I, I The... the thing that films like this, which have a real agit prop function, always strike me is uh, f- 
for someone like me with my sensibility in politics, and I expect you too, Alex, and doubtless you too as well, Thomas, we marvel at things like this and think, oh, surely if just anybody saw this, they would feel the same way as us and be outraged. But the thing is, these films very seldom reach those people. There's a, there's a real preaching to the converted thing that is uh, often the lot in life of these films. And I hope that this film will have a lot longer a life than um, these three screenings coming up at Acme that it will somehow find its way into people's lounge rooms. But in the meantime... I, I want it on Netflix. I yeah. was thinking, you know, wouldn't it be great if this was just on Netflix when somebody wakes up hungover on a Sunday yeah. and just like, oh, yeah. this looks interesting. Yeah, someone wakes yeah. up hungover and goes, oh, I feel dreadful. <laughs> I, I, my life is just, oh, what did I do last night? Oh, okay. Oh, some perspective. A oh, bit how of perspective. About that? Yeah. Oh, 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 dear. Right. Check my privilege. <laughs> it, I mean, it is very. I mean, it, I, I agree with you completely that I think that the people that would necessarily be going to see this really important film are already. You know what I mean? It's not somebody that needs convincing that this is something that is dramatically wrong that that really needs addressing. Um, and I and I think on that point, obviously, a, a really similar point of comparison would be Chasing Asylum, um, the Eva Warner film that we looked at. Was that last year? I year, think so, last year, year. Yeah, just last Probably year. Probably about so this time all, last year. All a bit of a blur, yeah. um, which is, again, sort of, you know, focus on the plight, um, you know, this horrendous treatment of, of people legally seeking asylum in this country, um, but very different. And, and what I, I normally with these kind of documentaries, I very consciously go out of my way to not read up about them beforehand. And I really wish I did with this one because I think I really missed out on a lot of really vital information. I wasn't wholly clear on the importance of Buchani himself and his background. I think if you look up um, his um, Beru's Buchani's Wikipedia page, you, you know, anybody who pulls that bullshit, you know, cue jumper nonsense at you, you just send them to that page and Buchani's story is a pretty pretty devastating one um and he's you know he's just a remarkable man you know putting himself at huge risk taking this video footage that is really i mean you can really feel that kiristami influence on on both of these filmmakers working together i wish i knew there's a woman in the film an australian woman um, who i found out later was called janet galbraith who um, was the founder of writing through fences who does a lot of work um on this you know with these people she does an incredible interview with um, um uh, two minutian men who talk about the history of, of Manus Island and, you know, their involvement with the Japanese and the Americans in World War II. Um, and I wish I had a little bit more background about that because the things that they were saying were really fascinating. But, yeah, it was one of those films I wish I'd read up about beforehand. And I think the Acme screenings, screenings will be great because you'll get that context, context um, from one of the filmmakers themselves, both before and after the screening. Yeah, and there's some fascinating little details of uh, just life outside of the fences. We see certain, I presume, ritualistic dances mm-hmm. being performed, and it's just a reminder, a like they're actually and, this was this yeah. is a culture. Like, yes, this is, is actually an island with its own culture, and you know the Australian government has just um, you know part of the legacy of Howard's Island uh, Pacific solution. You know, just this crazy. Well, there's moreover, there's a hint of a conspiracy theory percolating yeah. through this, a suggestion that the Australians might have something of interest in Manus Island beyond merely using it as a, a gulag and that's intriguing and um, I, I'd like to think that will be explored more in some future hopefully not quite so harrowing documentary because things will change for the better won't but, they, yeah, won't they hopefully we, we can hopefully people can stop make, having to make films like this I know that's a strange thing to say in a positive review but I'm I, I don't I don't want Bachani to have to, people like Bachani to have to take that footage. Considering his circumstances, I mean, you know, there's extraordinary footage of a cat mm. um, that, that, you know, he's obsessed with this cat. Mm. And it's just what 
what is the, what are the circumstances that this guy is sneaking, you know, risking real trouble, you know, by, by taking this video footage of this cat. Amazing. I think it's vital this kind of stuff is documented so that we have oh, proof all the time, isn't it? I hear what you're saying yeah. about that. It's so frustrating is it's going to be seen by the right people. But if nothing else, so future generations, when they hold us accountable for what has happened, they can say, you did know about this. What I think is really important about this film, and it's not saying it's better or worse, but Chasing Asylum was really importantly made from an Australian filmmaker's perspective. I think Orno lives between here and the US, I think. I think that's right, yes. Um, this was made by... Iranians, a Dutch Iranian, or an Iranian who lives in the Netherlands, um, and Burani, who was an Iranian journalist before he took to the sea. Um, these are very different perspectives. This is not an Australian-made film. There's an Australian woman, again, Janet Galbraith, who does interviews in it. Um, but I think that's a really important distinction. Alex and Cerise have been talking about Chowka. Please tell us the time. That's going to screen this coming Friday, Saturday and Sunday at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, courtesy of Sarvin Productions. I'm certainly going to try to catch it. Also tonight we've been talking about Graduation. That's screening at Cinema Nova, courtesy of Madman Entertainment. And David Lynch, The Art Life, is currently available on Home Entertainment, courtesy of Madman Entertainment. You've been listening to Thomas Cordwell, Cerise Howard and Alexandra Helen Nicholas. The podcast version of the show is edited by Faith Everard. Uh, next week's show, it'll just be Alex and myself, and I think we'll drag somebody off the streets in as well. It's going to be an all-documentary show. We're going to look at Ketty, Whitney, Can't I Be Me and Risk. Three documentaries that I think are going to be radically different from one another. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.